Hi there, my name's Pete Liston and welcome to the Military Mindset for Business podcast. Today, we're unpacking time. Everybody wants more time in the day, more hours, but it's just not going to happen. So today, we're going to turn that conversation on its head and not talk about time, but talk about tempo, right? And how we can drive change in our businesses by focusing on the tempo of what we're doing, not time. So today's guest, Steve Cottrell, used to be a cavalry officer and now he's a business consultant. And he advises businesses, both big and small, on leadership and operational excellence. And Steve's going to unpack the tenets of maneuver theory today and the application of tempo to business. So welcome to the Military Mindset for Business podcast as we talk with Steve Cottrell. So Steve Cottrell, welcome to the Military Mindset for Business podcast. How are you today? I'm great, mate. How are you? Thanks for having me. Mate, I'm really well. Um, so a bit of context, Steve and I were classmates at Duntroon. Um, good friend, but someone I actually really admire both from a personal and uh, professional perspective. And Steve, you're one of these blokes, mate, that whenever we sort of seem to get down together and have a chat, we don't get much done apart from talking about a lot of cool concepts. Yeah, it's uh, easy to fall into a black hole talking about some cool stuff with you. Yeah, brilliant. So what, let's, uh, let's do a bit of that today. But before we kick off, what I'd like to do is, can you just give me uh, a quick you know, Soldiers 5 on Steve and your, just before military, through your military career, you know, dive into some, anything that's been really important to you. Uh, and then I'd just like to unpack a little bit about your journey through transition and to where we are today. So over to you. Uh, well, thank you. Um, so Steve grew up in Canberra, um, joined the army out of high school at the Defence Academy and Military College where we met. And uh, from there served for just shy 15 years as a cavalry officer and was given great opportunities to kind of travel the world with that. And um, many, many very pivotal experiences in there. Um, towards the end, uh, injuries caught up with me, so I medically transitioned, and that's when I started looking at other options, and that's when I was exposed to the world of business and consulting and, and many other things, and loved that world, but then quickly started working out gaps in that world that our military knowledge could help fill, and vice versa, knowledge from that world that fills gaps in military knowledge. So just really seeing how it all came together, and that's when I started carving my own path, and we came across each other again and, and kind of uh, started chatting, and that's where... You know, I see a lot of really important things that the military world gave us that can help anyone. Yeah, like it's something that's always fascinating me is like one of the purposes of this podcast is to really demystify the military. You know, what is it that was really, uh, you know, we did some really powerful, interesting, complex, you know, very time critical things and they, it just got done. And then in business, you know, there's so many lessons to learn. Uh, so, I just want to unpack a little bit about a cavalry officer because this is going to really lead into you know the, what we're going to talk about today, which is tempo. Now, for those of you that aren't aware of the military, we've got really two broad pathways. We've got the warfighters um, who are what you classically think of the military roles, which is you know infantry and artillery and you know tanks and guns and all that really cool stuff. And then you've got the logisticians. Um, so, Steve, you're a warfighter. I was a logistician. Um, even though we've had a very shared common experience, uh, we've got this saying, individual experiences do vary in the military. So can you unpack the role of the cavalry and what you did in some of your experiences? Because I think it would be really helpful 
uh, in terms of how we unpack this topic of tempo today? Definitely. And um, before I answer that, I suppose um, one thing I will define a bit about the military is, uh, and cavalry in particular, is people have an expectation of what the military is like, and that's typically defined by Hollywood, by books, by just this expectation of what it's like. And luckily for me, cavalry was a place where, you know, as a square peg, I, I couldn't fit into the round hole the army normally needs, but the cavalry was a place where I could fit in. That's where there was a lot of freedom of thought and things weren't well-defined. You know, this expectation people have that the military is very specific and well-defined is true for some areas in the army, but not for cavalry. And um, that expectation that people are getting told what to do all of the time does does fit in some parts of the army and in some situations for everyone, but not necessarily for the majority of what I did in cavalry. And our job there was to be eyes and ears. We were reconnaissance. So when someone needed to plan for a mission or work out what might be happening, where they got their data from to plan from their inputs was us going out ahead of everyone else to find out what's going on. So that was, that was, well, you go. If we can just unpack some real time, uh, if you don't mind, examples of that on your Afghanistan deployment is what were the kind of things that you and your troop uh, would be doing? Um, my troop and I, Afghanistan, we weren't employed very much in a, cavalry role there we were a we were a hammer that helped keep everyone safe but the mindset we all had from our training what that meant we were doing compared to a lot of the infantry or other guys that were doing the same role as us was our adaptability our the way we were looking at the information input the way we were seeing things as opportunities or as you know some people would sit on the hills we're on and look at the villages and what was happening and be like, that's normal. We might look at that a different way and be like, what does this mean? From what I understand of the bigger picture, what is this telling me? How could I find out more? You know, it's this, not that other people don't have a hunger for information and, and any infantise or anyone listening, I'm not saying that at all. Just the training me and my troop had, we were taught to think quickly and to bring a lot of information in and make our own decision to understand the bigger picture, how we fit in that, and take the initiative and action to help fill in that bigger picture and achieve that end state for our our commander in this that example. So it does fit the classic role of cavalry, which is adaptability. Um, yeah. And if I think if I think of what cavalry means to me from a historic perspective, it seems to be like a game changing piece of like platform or asset that all of a sudden, when things are a bit bogged down, you've got this this thing that just comes in and can change what's going on in the battle space. Yeah, totally. It's, um, you know, and this is a very military term, but relative superiority. Like when most people think of military or, or war, the World War One or World War II of two forces clashing face on face, that's not how it is anymore. You know, mm. yes, we could be a large, big, heavy organisation that will just be able to go through anything we want but a much better use of assets and force would be let's find a weak point where we can exploit, where we can take advantage of our relative superiority. You know, we don't have to be the biggest gun out there. We just have to find the place that will have the most impact for us and put enough stuff there to achieve our end state. 
You know, it's finding the critical place so that we can just put enough resources there to win or to turn the tide of the initiative or battle into our favour. That's, that's a key thing I learned from cavalry. It's not about having the biggest gun or the most people. It's about being able to understand what the other side might be trying to do or what you need to do and where's the best place to try and achieve that and adapting as that goes along. This is so cool for business. You know, what I'm hearing here is, you know, um, like opportunity, the ability to be able to, you know, decisively take a moment and exploit it, you know, before your competitors create that advantage. Um, but bef- let's talk a little bit about how cavalry uses tempo in manoeuvre. So you can just unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah. And first, just to define um, manoeuvre there, it's, it's not necessarily like manoeuvre as in our manoeuvring things. Manoeuvre in that context, if I'm hearing you correctly, talks about manoeuvre theory, which is this theory of I'm not going to have a, an attritional kind of mindset of, you know, it's fist on fist, it's force on force. Manoeuvre is understanding the strengths and weaknesses of different aspects, understanding where things might be and what they might mean, and then finding the correct place where I can achieve the end state I want where I can protect my weaknesses and exploit my strengths. So that's the kind of manoeuvre piece there. And tempo is a key part of that. You know, I think everyone understands how important time is, but tempo is the concept of kind of, it's a relative measure of time. You know, time being important and everyone understanding that, people kind of accept that at surface level. But if we take it that, that a kind of bit deeper, there's, you know, one second for me is one second for you. But let's say I spend my second or my minute or my week doing the wrong thing. There's not a direct, like a, there's an exponential penalty for that. Because there's a time, amount of time it will take me to realise, was I doing the wrong thing? And by wrong thing, it could be the wrong thing to achieve my end state or the wrong thing in reacting to something I've seen or perceived, be it an opportunity or a threat. And then there's the time I've spent doing the thing, the time I've spent perceiving was this right or wrong. Then we still need to do something that is correct. So that's not a like one-to-one penalty of time. If I get to the end of that, say, two and a bit weeks of doing the wrong thing for a week, working out that I did the wrong thing and then doing the right thing, that's two and a half weeks to achieve something that should have taken one week if I'd understood what to do. So tempo is a way we can look at this and start to kind of pass it down, break it down into different bits to understand what can we do to affect our use of time and our adaptability. It's a really important thing because we, as business owners, you know, business managers, we always, this is the most critical resource we have. You know, like it is the one thing that we nearly, you know, time and cash, what, how can we get more of this stuff? But you're, what we're talking about here, it's not the straight measurement of time, but it's the application of time that is you know, really important. We're not going to get more hours in the day. But one thing I learned from you, and I, and I carry it through, and it's, it is probably one of the most important things I've ever learned in business, is how to actually generate tempo. And you know, when we're looking at this form of tempo, which is the three levels, speed of task, speed of task transition 
and speed of decision-making, it's been something that's like been game-changing for me. So can you unpack now how we can take this application of tempo through these three different categories and really explore how we can you know, shift time using tempo? Definitely. And um, if it's right with you, I'll start with speed of task and then transition, then decision. And that's because I think the easiest win, but the smallest win is from task. The hardest one, but the biggest win is from decision. So we'll move along that spectrum there. Because speed of task, correct me if I'm wrong, is this is the classic thing that people look at when they want to generate tempo. They're like, can we do this thing quicker? Like straight out of the Homer Simpson School of Leadership, can I drive my team harder, faster to do the job quicker? It is. It, it's how good am I at my job? How good are you at your job? And by how good, I will specify that as how effective am I doing the right things and how efficient am I doing these things the right way, the most effective way. There's a point of diminishing returns with how good is someone at their job. You know, this, like, if you're at 80%, that, that's potentially good enough. If you're at 100%, that's great, but get from 80 to 100% in terms of effectiveness for efficiency in your job might be a disproportionate investment, as in you may not get a return on investment of the time taken for that level of training to get to that level, let alone maintain that level. You know, there is a point of diminishing returns. So, so long as you're enabling people to have the right resources in terms of what do they need to do and how do they need to do it and what does good look like and what timeline does that need to be on, if you're enabling people to have that and enabling them to define that for themselves so that they can do that in their way, that's probably enough. It's th this is really important to do, but in terms of the biggest impact, there's many bigger wins there. This one I would call a hygiene factor. Everyone should have this and should be doing it. And in some way, I imagine most places are, like they'll have best practices, they'll have SOPs on how do we do something. There's probably many ways to get better there. And one of those would be helping everyone feel motivated and connected to the workplace to get their, their discretionary effort, that extra 20% we only put in when we care about something. But to get that 80% that, that, you know, are they doing the job well enough? I think that's it. And I think the important thing with this one for businesses is understanding what is the minimum acceptable standard. And minimum, not in a bad way, like if everyone just turns up and does the minimum acceptable standard, is that enough for my business to succeed? That's what I mean there. Defining what that level is so that people can understand that and either achieve that or higher, or if they're below that, how do we manage that and how do we talk about that? If you've got those practices there, that will help you achieve this, what you can get from speed of task, execution, you know, how do people do their jobs? We're always looking for leverage in business. We're always looking for that. How do we, you know, put in one unit and get five units in return? Um, yeah. Speed of task, when we're looking at the hierarchy of how to generate tempo in a business, that's the lowest level of return. Um, yeah. Take us, take us now to speed of task transition. So task transition is, to define it, how long does it take me to go from task A to task B? And there's a few bits in there. One is recognizing or understanding that I need to switch tasks. So is there a time, period of time there where I'm still doing task A when I should be doing task B? And if there is a period of time then, then that's just wasted time where I'm not realizing I need to switch. I'm wasting that time there. 
then there is how long does it take me to switch tasks and be doing task B at the effective level. So this is where SOPs, training, and just helping people understand what output is needed from them, what does success look like today, this week, this month, whatever time period you want to look at, what is the thing we need to be working on? And as you're doing that, how do you keep measuring whether it's the right thing? I would, I think ideally is we enable teams so that people understand the end state, the goal we're trying to achieve. And if, as they're seeing what's happening, if they need to switch to a different way to achieve that end state, they should, because the end state is what matters. The adaptability required for a business to succeed means how we've planned for something to happen it's unlikely to happen that way. We need people to switch tasks to get us to the end state, depending on environmental factors or competition factors or market factors, whatever. Like, we need people to adapt. So, from a process perspective, um, I'm going to unpack speed of task transition a different way. And, I, and I, there's a classic community of business owners out there, i.e., tradies, pointing the finger at you, you here that really struggle with this concept, right? So an example would be, quote comes in, whatever channel, phone, email, hey, I need you to do this quote. It might take you a day or two to get out on site, then actually do the site assessment. So that's task two. I'm on site, I capture everything I need. Then I've got to go back to the office, I throw the folder on the front of the ute, and then it might take me a couple more days to do task three, which is actually deliver that quote. Then it might take me a few more days to follow up. So we've got all of these tasks and we can't do any of those tasks any quicker. So we can't do speed of task, but we've got a lot of what's called wait time sitting in between those tasks. So with speed of task transition in any organization, if I can analyze and look for the wait time in between these steps and make a successful and decisive transition to the next task, removing wait time, then straight away I've generated a tempo and I've decreased the whole cycle. Mm. So, so straight away, that's a, that's a really simple example of how we're not going to do the actual tasks any quicker. It's going to take as long as it takes to do the site assessment or to do the quote. But speed of task transition, how quickly in a basic thing can we just move to the next task? And they might be totally different people in an organization or different elements of the organization might be doing those different tasks. So that's one example there of speed of task transition in a business. Find wait time and kill it, remove it out of the process. Um, But the one that I'm really most interested in talking to you about, and particularly, again, coming back to your cavalry experiences, the most leveraged form of, uh, you know, tempo delivery, which is speed of decision-making. There's so much we can unpack here. So tell us from your perspective about speed of decision-making as as a real driver. I'll start with um, why I think it's the biggest biggest gain, if used correctly, in in relation to time. And the way I'll explain this is, and this won't be how everyone reacts to something going wrong, but I imagine aspects of this will resonate with anyone listening. Let's say something happens that I don't expect. Normally what happens is that thing goes wrong. It could be a computer issue. It could be uh, an invoice error. It could be a car crash. It could be whatever. It's something unexpected. 
normally the next thing I do in my head is I think, what just happened? The reactions like that was unexpected. Then uh, probably something like, what does that mean? What's the impact of this on me? Can I still do what I was planning? Do I need to do something different? If it's something different, what resources do I have? And what does that solution look like? Then when I finally have that answer, I need to communicate that to the people that will help me do that. So I need to tell them, here's the task, here's what we need to do. Then there's a speed of trans- you know, a time of transition to that task. And then we, we're doing that. So whatever that looks like for whatever situation you're in, there's a whole bunch of units of time where I'm in my head thinking through a lot of things and anyone in my team is sitting there doing nothing, watching me do that or, or watching whatever's happening, thinking, why aren't we doing anything? What should I be doing? But I don't know the right thing to do. So I'll just wait to be told what to do. There's a whole bunch of dead time there for everyone else and a whole bunch of time I'm in my head thinking about what does this mean and what should we do? So that's how I see speed of decision-making is like, what is it? Does that make sense? It does. Um, I'm going to unpack it from a business perspective, um, but can I ask, first of all, how powerful speed of decision-making is for you in a potential combat situation to take advantage and win? Yeah, and and I suppose I'll answer that. And before I do that, I'll just add a bit that I should have added. That whole piece I just talked through there was what normally happens. What speed of decision actually is, is imagine if before I'm doing stuff, I think what's the most likely thing that will go wrong at the worst place at the worst time? Or what's the worst thing that will go wrong at the worst place in the worst time? If I can define just those two scenarios or more, you could think about what else could go wrong, what might happen. You know, this is all about contingencies and planning. If I've thought about those situations and thought about what I could do in those situations to adapt to my end state, and and we're not going to be perfect in thinking about what are these things that that will go wrong, as in when something does go wrong, it probably won't be what we thought. But the benefit of speed of decision is instead of seeing the thing go wrong and I then think what's happening, I instead ask myself, with what's happening, which plan that I've thought through is most suited to this? And that might be a 60% solution at best. That's fine because what that means is I can now tell everyone in my team, here's what I think is happening, do plan B, do plan C, do this contingency. And then everyone knows in that what they need to be doing. So they'll start doing stuff. And then I can keep thinking further of, what do I need to do? What does this mean to the plan and what do I need to adapt? So the benefit there is from speed of decision, I've, I've stolen time from the future in thinking about what could go wrong and what might need to happen. In the future when that thing happens, I still need to think and, and refine the plan, but I've got my staff doing concurrent activity. I'm building tempo. I'm building momentum. I'm building action through my staff and through the team that I control. Now, in terms of... This is a very deliberate thing that we do in the military before an event or activity. We actually don't just go blind in in terms of our, hey, everything's going to be rosy, tiptoe through the tulips plan. We actually think and consider about all the possible things that could go wrong, most likely, or most dangerous, And then we put a plan in place or, sorry, we consider some contingencies. So in the event of that 
uh, action occurring, we can actually apply one of those contingencies to make that decision faster, to keep the momentum. Exactly. And, you know, as part of that planning process you've talked about there, when we communicate that to our staff, we, we explain, here's the things that we think might go wrong and here's what we will do in these situations. And the benefit of that is when the thing goes wrong, it's unlikely that I'm the one that sees it. But now that I've told the people that are working for me or that I'm executing this plan with, what I've expected might go wrong, they'll tell me, hey, that thing you said, that's happening here. Should we do the thing? You know, it helps that speed of reaction. That like all of this, we're using time so much more efficiently and effectively in this situation because of how we've thought about what might go wrong, all right, and what would, who would do what in that situation. But there's two parts of what you talked about there. So number one is the deliberate act of going through this planning process and looking at the most likely course of action, the most dangerous course of action, and thinking about the contingencies. But the other thing that you brought out there is you mentioned that you may not have the eyes or ears on the situation and that your, to use a military term, subordinate team members or team leaders can start taking that decisive action on their behalf without asking you for permission. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. I think this, this here is one of the, particularly the way that the Australian Army does warfare and the essence of manoeuvre theory is the ability to delegate decision-making. Because again, when I was talking about speed of task transition, I'm, I'm thinking about where, are the, where is the wait time and how do we remove wait time? But when, when we're coming to speed of decision-making, we're looking at bottlenecks and where are we, how can we remove these bottlenecks or paralysis for the decision? So it, from a cavalry perspective, can we talk about this, this delegation of authority down as far as possible and what the effect of that is? Definitely. And, and this is where terminology wise, I would say this is in like a decentralized execution, a decentralized structure where people don't have to get permission or be told do X, do Y, you know, here's what I'm seeing, go and do this. This is where people are empowered to do things. We all understand the goal we're moving towards. We all understand how, what piece of the puzzle we are. And if you see something happening, you seize the initiative and you kind of deal with it. You, you either let someone know I've seen something that I can't deal with and you need to deal with it, or I've seen something and I'm dealing with it. That helps everyone understand what's happening. One of the things you came out there uh, with, and my first P in military mindset for business is purpose, is everybody understanding what the end state is. That, that's really interesting because in business, a lot of the times we hold information to ourselves and we don't share it. But you're saying this is the opposite. We've got to actually share as much as we can, and everybody must understand the end state. Exactly. And there's a, there's a few bits to this. In, you know, world, according to Steve, how a lot of the business world has developed is from what I would call complicated environments, complicated situations. And by that, I mean, I can boil a complicated situation down to all the different variables involved, be it a factory, be it, be it a computer system, something like that. And I can determine all of those variables. So I can determine a best path through, the most efficient path through to avoid bottlenecks and use my resources. 
but we all live in a complex world where um, there's a framework developed by Guide IBM called Kinefin, uh, C-Y-N-E-F-I-N, Kinefin, and it's about domains. And these are really just different environments, be it simple, complicated, complex, or chaotic. In a complex world, you can't determine the relationship of variables until it's in hindsight or with hindsight. What that means is when something's happening, I probably won't know that what's causing it. And the best way to work out a solution is to do stuff, experiment. I think, you know, by going, I think this is the best thing to do. We do that. We see the reaction and we keep adapting. Now, this normal team structure that I think the business world has grown up with of very hierarchical, very directive, very centralized of the pe person in the middle tells someone, go and do the thing. Tell me when you're done. That's it. That doesn't work in complex environments. The, the, the inputs of what's happening comes to probably the, the lowest level of the organization, the most, um, you know, the subordinate level. And if those people that are getting these information inputs don't understand the bigger picture, then there won't be an information input for the decision maker to make a decision. So it, it's really an opposite way of acting. What a lot of people have learned is the right way to do things. You need to trust the people working for you and you need to tell them where we're moving towards. And you need to let them know, here's the resources you have and here's the risk threshold I'm giving to you to accept. And that helps I mean, people make decisions to get us there. So in a centralized model, we're talking about really holding that power up to the, up the chain of command effectively, where, yeah. where the decisions made up and back down again. But the problem with that centralized model is the people who have their fingers like, you know, on the pulse of what's going on in the environment are not the ones making the decision. And the literal time it takes for that decision to go all the way up and all the way back down again, the opportunity has gone. The initiative has gone. Um, so, oh, yeah, exactly. So the, the decentralized model where we empower everybody on our team to understand what the end state is, to understand what the purpose of the organization is, and then when we actually empower them to take risk relative to their position, their experience, the level of trust, et cetera, and we empower them to take advantage of, of opportunities and literally to seize the moment and to push on and take that, take it right now. Yeah. So what, what about this end state piece? What are we talking about when we talk about an end state? Like in the military, we call it purpose method end state. Can you just um, define that for us? And let's correlate yeah. it and move, move it across. Because this is one of those, you now it's a very militaristic term, purpose method end state. How can we reframe that or rephrase that so any business owner listening can empower their team to understand what their end state is? Yeah, so in the military as part of something called mission command, which is a decentralized uh, theory of leadership, there's, there's an aspect called commander's intent. And how we break that down is purpose, method, and end state. Purpose is what are we here to achieve? Method, you know, what are the key steps along the way? And not steps as in we're going to walk this way. It's, it's what are the key events that will happen to get us to that end state, the key pieces of the puzzle. You know, the, the key moments in execution that I'm perceiving will help us to the end state. And the end state is, what do we look like at the end? What have we achieved? 
what resources have we used? What resources do we have left? And how are we postured? Like, are we done? Or are we doing something else? So it's helping people understand for this thing we're doing, how do we look and what are we ready for at the end? And, you know, like with everything in the military, all these things are quite well defined. But for anyone applying this stuff, I'd say don't worry about the words too much. If you don't want to call it purpose method and say that's fine, it's really simply like what are we doing? What are the key steps? to get me there and then once we get there what does that look like what is success you know renee brown in one of her things talks her one of her cues is paint success for me or something like that like what does that end state look like and then as long as there's a chance for the people who are doing this with you or for you to ask questions of what that is so that they can get the the understanding those are the things that help those people get you to the end state help move you through whatever will happen so that you can adapt to whatever happens and still achieve the end state, even if it's not by the plan you first had. It really feels to me like you're taking the blinkers off your team members. It's not like you have to share commercial and confidence information all the way down to the bottom level, but really just taking the blinkers off to give people context of why and what's going on around them. Uh, and again, from the you know business leader, business owner's perspective, this decentralize, decentralization or ability to let go is so empowering for me and, and coming back to my time that I can focus on you know things that are more strategic rather than being tactical. Because this is really the liberation of tactics out of the leader. You're letting tactics and those micro-level activities down to people who are hopefully better than you at it, people that you're paying for to do it because that's their job, and let's now let's now empower them to do great at it. Yeah, and you know, there's a a small example comes to mind that really helped me understand this piece, and it's from a book called the Maneuver Theory Handbook, and it's a German example because a lot of this stuff was used very effectively by the German military in World War Two. They called it mission type orders, um, and a few other things, but part of commander's intent is say you're working for me, Pete, I'll tell you my commander's intent, but I'll also tell you my boss's intent. So you're going to end up with an understanding of the level above you and two levels above you because that helps draw this golden thread of logic, which one of my old bosses used to call it between the strategic level and the tactical level. Because if everything's nested together of these commander's intent one and two up, and that keeps dripping down the organisation, everything will be aligned in effort. So in this example, it was a large German unit, and his boss said, cross the river, turn left, and get rid of some people. And why we're doing that is my boss wants us to take Paris. When this guy crossed the river, there was no one between him and Paris, so he didn't do what his boss said to do. He went and took Paris. And, you know, there's a lot of details in there I'm skipping, but at a broad level, that's what happened. So... In this situation, this guy did not do what his boss told him to do because if he ignored that, he could achieve what his boss wanted. He could achieve the two-up intent. So like you said, taking the blinkers off and helping people understand these nested end states will help people help achieve what you want. If they understand the resources and why we're doing things, sometimes we can be more. you might be more efficient by actually ignoring what I've told you to do and being like, 
you want this and you've said do it this way, but I can just grab the thing. Like people will find more efficient and effective ways to get the bigger picture success for you. And think of how empowering this is. Though. Like this is going to be really confrontational to some people to think that they can let that kind of decision-making go. But imagine like we're coming back to this time perspective. If, if, it, if I plan to take Paris in six months, but I've all of a sudden I've done it in two weeks, what does that mean for what we're actually looking to achieve here? Uh, you know, I think this is something that, you know, there's a lot more we, we need to unpack about how this, this delegation with trusting does. But the way that I think about it is it's all about control, right? But you need two things to generate control. You need consistency and you need visibility. Like consistency is when we have our agreed set of processes and actions. And I believe this, man, my, my doctrinal theory for is, is not is not that good, but there's a tenant of maneuver, sorry, there's a tenant of mission command where you need that common set of practices. Is that right? Something around that? Yeah, um, it's defined in the doctor's common tactical language, but just in a really simple way, it's if I say, go and sell a thing, do you understand what I mean? As in what I'm imagining in my head when I say that, is that what's in your head? That's all it means. Is there a common language between us? And that's where we get our consistency from. But not, and once we get our consistency, if I can add visibility into that, so using our technology, our platforms, our communication means, if now I have visibility on what my team members are doing, yes, yes, we've got consistency. We're doing it my way or our way. Then we've got visibility. Like we know what you're doing and we've got, we can see that without having to ask you every five minutes what's going on. Then I feel like I'm in control. Then I'm more happy to let this go. But I just want to come back to this empowering teams thing because, again, we're looking at speed of decision-making being the most leveraged driver of tempo how do I build? It's easier said than done. How do I build these teams? It's that's a very good question. And as part of that, there's a word you just used before that that um, control that I think is very poorly understood, uh, in my opinion. And it's also part of a term that I think is very poorly understood within the military and outside the military. The amount of articles I've read or people that have told me that a command and control mindset or command and control style of leadership is very authoritarian, very centralised, very much a do this, do that. But that's the general concept and understanding of what command and control is. It's got these quite authoritarian and negative connotations to it. There's a really beautiful picture in one of the Marine Corps doctrine doctrines about leadership and and mission command where it just uses two arrows. So if I was to take the normal, more widely held understanding of command and control and draw an arrow of the flow of that in organisation, it would be two down arrows because it's authoritarian. So the command and the control comes from the leader and goes down to the people in that team. When the really key thing that changed a lot of the way I look about this from this Marine Corps doctrine is command goes down, control flows up, and that builds a feedback loop. Because a lot of the time, like, you know, an example you were saying before of, you know, if we're in a centralised structure, the people doing the thing, the time taken when they see an opportunity to tell up the chain and get told to do the thing down the chain, that's not great. But in most situations they don't even have a pathway to send information up. 
So there'll never be a decision made because there's no pathway or they're not, or they don't know that they're enabled to tell someone, hey, I'm seeing something that might help you make a better decision. So a key part in this, how do we structure teams is this fundamental shift in how we look at what the team is and how things flow through there. Because what we actually need is feedback loops. If I tell you and anyone else in my team, Pete, hey guys, this month I want to sell 400 units of our dock, whatever that thing is. And why we want to do that is to clear the warehouse out so we can get a new product in. And I think that product will have this growth, whatever. Helping everyone understand that bigger picture means as the month goes along, let's say we're in week two towards the end of week two, and my warehouse manager goes, hey, Steve, we haven't even moved 100 units yet and we're 50% through the time. So I don't think you're going to sell you 400 units. So if I've got a team where that feedback loop is enabled, I can now with half of my month left go, all right, why aren't we selling enough? How can I change things? But if I haven't told people that bigger picture or enabled them to tell me, hey, your plan isn't working, we'll get to the end of the month and I won't have achieved my goal. And a truck turns up, you know, with a whole, a truck turns up to drop some stuff into the warehouse and there's no room to put it in. It just becomes chaos. And think exactly. of the time again, that like the, think about the stagnation that these things cause, you know, like the very simple example here. But again, what I feel out of this is we are really, again, looking at that leveraged effect. It's not just about hours or seconds or days now anymore. It's, it is the leveraged, you know, multiplier effect of all of these things to stop confusion and chaos in the future. And then having to un, unburden or untangle all of that mess later on. Exactly. Um, and like just enabling people in your team to understand here's the goal I want to achieve. Here are the key things that I need to know to help us get there. And please come and tell me as soon as you see any of these things or anything you think will affect that end state. Empowering people in your team to do that totally changes it. And there's a, there's a bunch of requirements everyone will need for this of trusting people, aligning everyone to a common purpose and everyone keeping their ego down a bit so that, you know, if a subordinate comes and tells me, hey, what you planned isn't working because of this, this and this, don't take that stuff personally. You need to build an environment where it's safe for people to say, hey, it's not working and here's why or here's what I'm seeing. You know, you're not selling the product you thought you would. Something's missing. Maybe the marketing isn't hitting the right audience or whatever, but we're not moving stock or we're not achieving progress. So enabling that team to communicate with these feedback loops is key. Again, those feedback loops is when we're in the military, one of the things that we must have is information that we can turn into intelligence to make decisions. We don't, we're yeah. not making these decisions in the vacuum of you know, what this data coming up is. So unless you're empowering your team to feed you those, and you can, de you can designate what those key criteria are, we've got... Again, I'm going to stretch my doctrine here. You've got PIRs, Priority Information Requirements, and Commanders, Critical Information Requirements. Is that right? You can, you can set these things to your team and say, I need to know this stuff when it's going on. Or yeah. I can use my, my, tech, my tech platforms and my data feeds to do that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a very simple way to look at those things are, you know, do I want you to tell me some bits of information periodically on a rhythm? And that's the only time I want to know about them. 
you know, like at the end of each week, give me the warehouse stats from the warehouse manager in terms of stock, or I can jump online and look at the dashboard and see that. Or do I want you to call me as soon as you see something? And I don't care if you work with someone who works for me. If anyone sees this, the first thing they do is let me know. Like Exactly. So which of these scenarios different bits fit in? And that might be different for each plan or each situation. But if people know, hey, this is a critical thing that Steve needs to know, tell him straight away. And if I can't get on to Steve, who do I call instead? Like, what's the redundancy in there? Or is what I'm seeing not that important? And I'll put it in the daily summary email or whatever the thing is that, that people do. You know, is it routine information or is it irregular information that someone needs to know straight away? This keep coming back to a common theme here of, of empowerment and trust. You know, and obviously they're like, you're recruiting these people. You want to you want to get the best people you can, you know, afford. However, if you, uh, like I always think of team members like a sports team, you've got your all-stars and then you've got your bench players, you know. If you're recruiting bench players, how are you going to develop those bench players to maybe become an all-star one day or to infuse them or, you know, love this RMC word, inculcate them into, you know, the way of the business that we can actually, that they their voice matters and that, that it's, again, summarizing it for a takeaway for everybody, you know, to do after this is simply tell you, when you instruct your team to do something or give them a task, say so what and what's next you know tell them why they're doing this and what comes next afterwards that would be a very very simple start point to start infusing this this methodology through a business exactly and like a and something very effective that the kind of the military machine uses as part of this whole planning process is you know i deliver my plan to you I'll give you a period of time to soak that in and then I'll probably schedule in something called a back brief where I get you to tell me how you will execute what I've told you to do. And this is not about micromanagement. This is about making sure are we aligned? Have we got that common language understanding of I told you to do X and you're going to do X. And you come back to me and say, hey, Steve, you told me to do A, B and C. I'm going to do it like this in this place by this time. And I might go, hey, I don't mind that, but that misses this key bit. So it's a way to that feedback loop again, it refines understanding. It, it saves time later because the alignment of the end state is there. The alignment of the risk thresholds and resource allocations are there. But this, you know, it, for anyone out there who wants to apply this stuff to your team, if you give them a task, a simple question to ask is like, what are you going to do? Or like, tell me what you're going to do with what I've told you. And that's just getting them to tell you back what they heard, what they understood and how they're planning on doing it. Because if you, and that may seem, I, I guarantee a bunch of people have an allergic reaction to what I just said. They will not want to do that because that feels like micromanagement. And that may be the case depending on your execution. But if I ask someone that and they don't, tell me what I was thinking of as an end state when I gave them the task. If we don't do that, they'll go and do the wrong thing and we'll work out it was the wrong thing after they've wasted all of their time getting me somewhere I didn't want to go. And then we still need to do the thing I planned on. So let's role play that a little, right? 
Um, and again, yeah. this is a brilliant way to get, uh, again, uh, execution done when I'm not necessarily the master of it. I don't need to be the master of it. So let me bring you a quick example. Um, and straight off the cuff, in my business, I want a cybersecurity plan. I don't know what that is or how it works or what it's even going to look like, but I'm going to talk to my tech team and I'm going to say, right, in one month, I want to launch a new cybersecurity plan for the business and I want you to help me with it, right? So uh, the end, you've got one month and I'm going to give you, you know, uh, 15 hours a week of your time to focus on this. So I've given you an end state, I've got a bit of resources. The effect that I want out of my cybersecurity plan is that my customer data is tight and that I have a layer of redundancy about what's going on. And I want to understand penetration testing and all that kind of stuff. I'm struggling to even know what I'm talking about here. I just want the effect of having a, a cybersecurity thing. So Steve, you go ahead. In one month, you're going to launch this plan for me. Uh, I'd like you to come back in a week's time and give me a back brief. And at that, uh, and I'd like you to explain a couple of things to me, what you're going to do. And I want you to give me three providers and your strengths and weaknesses of each provider. Um, go ahead, come back in a week, give me the back brief and we'll take it from there. Is that the kind of thing we're talking about here? Yeah. Um, that's definitely, that's definitely one way to do it. And what that situation would have is you've given the person 15 hours this week to go away and think about the problem, look at some providers, do a bit of an assessment and a kind of whittling down of that list to come in and go, here's the providers I think could work and here's how they could help you achieve your end state of keeping your customer data tight. And if what they bring in isn't that, you've still then got three weeks, 45 hours of their time to get you to the end state you wanted. So instead of wasting 60 hours, maybe you only waste 15. So like that definitely is achieving it because it's helping hone in this understanding of your end state and what that looks like and helping them build that, you know, achieve success for you with that. The other thing is that only took me like literally one minute to say that. And it's, and now I've, I've empowered them to take the, you know, they'll do 15 hours of work, come back, but I'll still maintain control because in that next back brief in one week's time, I'll listen to the plan I'll be able to test and adjust and guide it or change it totally if I want without investing these hours and hours and hours of needing to understand what this even is. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, one, one slight amendment I could suggest if you had the time for that sort of uh, off-the-cuff one you just brought up would be tell them, you know, give me the back brief in a week. I want the providers. I want this. But you could also be like, you know, before the end of today, I want a two-minute back brief and I want in that, I want you to tell me what's the end state, what are the steps you're thinking you'll achieve, what risks do you see to that for you, and what risks do you see from that for me? And for me, I mean my end state, your end state of achieving tight customer data, and risks for them could look something like, well, Pete, if I'm doing 15 hours here, we've also got this other thing happening that might take time, so I might have an issue of not enough time to achieve both things that matter for the business this month. So... You know, that thing I've just suggested there, that two-minute back brief, might be a way to then go, they say, I might not have time for that. You could be like, well, deprioritize the other thing. This customer data thing is priority. So use 15 hours a month for that. If you need more time, come and let me know. If you need less time, do the other thing as well. But, you know, my priority is the customer data. So that just even two, five-minute chat, 
this afternoon, the day you've given the task, could help refine understanding and get them to the back brief at the end of the first week in a much more effective way. So, you know, the key thing in that that thing there that, that is important is tell people the things you want them to tell you back. Like, I'm not telling you what to say. I'm just saying I want to know the key steps, the end state, what risks you perceive for you and what risks you perceive for me. Nice and simple. Four questions, answer them, come back to me this afternoon. And we're building momentum. We're building tempo. Um, I keep coming back to these themes of empowerment. Um, control, like you said, I like what you were talking about before, but that control is not some kind of toxic masculinity. You must do it my way because I'm the boss. It's actually liberating for me because, because I'm in control, I can actually let go and focus on bigger things. Um, Steve, just before we wrap up, I just want to unpack a little bit of your experience since you've been out of the military now on connecting both with big business and small businesses, just some of your observations about how these theories have worked in some of, you know, when you've worked with big multinational corporates versus the little guys as well. It's, um, that's a really good question. And in some ways, it's the same across all organisations, regardless of size. You know, it's a, and the bit that's the same is the lack of definition of what, not what needs to be achieved, but what we need to talk about to get to the achievement. What I'm empowered to do or not to do to get us to success. You know, it's this lack of definition of what the feedback loop looks like. What am I authorising you to do in terms of communication to me, communication to others, decision-making about things? You know, it's just, it's not that well-defined. And that's where, you know, we've mentioned mission command, which is this whole theory around decentralised leadership. And so small business to big business, I see a real nugget of gold from mission command to enable any team of any size to transition to a decentralised execution model. You know, this, this, I help you understand my end state and you go and achieve it for me in an empowered way. That's something I've seen across small and big business. There are, there are definitely teams doing it, you know, in, in some large, large businesses I've done some stuff with. They've got teams that are naturally doing this because there's an alignment between the types of people. You know, that's where it just naturally is happening. But it, I've seen enough in my experience, and I'm sure you have as well. This can be engineered in any team at any level of any size. So there's a lot of teams that could benefit from this. Well, I'm going to wrap up now by coming back to our three, our three key messages here that stop thinking about time as being your problem because the sun's going to rise and the sun's going to set. You know, we can't affect that. A minute, second, day, they're not going to change. We need to shift the thinking here to tempo and how we can drive tempo. Now, coming back to our three forms of tempo, uh, speed of task you're going to get limiting returns on this. You're only going to get so much out of it if you, if you think that you can get productivity gains by doing things faster. Sex, so we, we take it to the next level and we're looking at speed of task transition, which is about moving wait timing and allowing um, teams to switch from one, team, one task to the next and be able to create advantage by compressing that cycle time. But the most powerful one of all is speed of decision-making. And number one, removing yourself from being the bottleneck. 
How do we get you out of the way and empowering your team, uh, you know, to be able to, you know, grasp opportunities, you know, take initiative as it comes and, you know, just really be able to drive momentum and tempo. Exactly. Um, just as, exactly. Steve, you've worked for um, multinational corporates. You work for small people. Um, you do this stuff for a living. And, you know, like if, if people want to connect with you and talk about this, now, how do we get in touch with you? Like LinkedIn is the best way, is it? Yep, LinkedIn, uh, Stephen Cotterell, um, or my uh, email address, but LinkedIn is probably easier than just giving my email address here, but um, that's probably the best way for people to connect or reaching out to uh, you um, as well. And, you know, I would say the, the key thing I would recommend for people to do is I understand how busy everyone is. And, and the default is a lot of the time, people spend their time dealing with day-to-day problems. Yet, when you ask people the big problems in businesses, it'll probably, you'll, you'll end up getting an answer that's something around, I'm not achieving my long-term goals. So to do this stuff and, and achieve some of these things we're talking about, it requires an, an effort and an investment of your time with a view to the future. It's sitting down and thinking, what are my strategic goals? It's the speed of decision. What might go wrong with that? Spending this time that would maybe seem unproductive to some people of thinking, what might go wrong? But having the understanding of what might go wrong will help you adapt. Being able to adapt will help you use time better. This investment will pay off. In In summary, doing this to empower your team is really just going to empower yourself. And put yourself 100%. in your highest place, mate. Brilliant. Exactly, mate. I'm um, I'm going to wrap it up. There is I love this stuff because for me it is about leverage. It's a multiplier. Um, you know, it's bringing bringing a tank to a knife fight in terms of how we actually can apply this from a tempo perspective. Uh, Steve Cottrell, um, I'm going to have your LinkedIn connections in the show notes below. Uh, everybody out there, this is um, this is achievable in any organization of any of any size. And you know, jump on. There's a couple of things to look at. Look up Mission Command on Google. Have a quick look throughout. Look at Maneuver Theory. But it's all about tempo, tempo driving advantage. Uh, Steve, Military Mindset for Business podcast, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a great chat. Take care, everybody. Like, share, comment, do that thing. Ciao.